fellow humans who stand for the internet. This is Power Report, episode 16, and uh, welcome. As the time of recording this, it's the um, end of November holiday. We all know what kind of goes around that, and we all know how especially weird it is this year. And so there's a lot of really great podcasts where they spent a lot of time going into the history of Thanksgiving and a lot of the issues that... Um, come with the holiday, of course, that are very natural. And I think a lot of that's out there. And I'm not going to try to beat that because I just simply can't at this point right now. But I think what I can do is something that will be kind of another form of a Power Report episode. I've done um, episodes with panels that are really fun. We've done episodes with special guests, and there are more of those coming soon that I'm really excited about. Um, and then of course there'll be some live streams and other different things. That's the thing about Power Report is it's a whole, it takes a lot of different forms, but this is the new way we're doing like a news informational show. But another form I think I want to experiment with, which is honestly the one I've been most hesitant to try to do, is this format where I am talking solo as a single person. And this is like an old school, like talk radio show where I have a bunch of ideas and a story that I hope to weave and tell through those ideas. And it's a very kind of intimate relationship between me, the speaker, Dan, and you, the person listening to this. Um, It's something that's been done in politics and is kind of the default way that news is done. But I've always shied away from doing this specifically because I don't like the implied authoritativeness that it implies you get when one person is hosting a show to another individual, that one-to-one relationship. I think the best decisions are made with a bunch of people bouncing ideas off of each other, and this can feel sometimes like an echo chamber. But I also find that there's a lot of things I do have to say, and it's really useful to have not necessarily an angle, but to have a full, complete sort of story to tell. Um, to use data and facts and research as I usually would, but in order to tell a narrative to contextualize the news and what's going on in a certain way. Because there are a lot of narratives out there and a lot of ways to contextualize it that are, frankly, bad. And so this is an opportunity for me to do that right. That being said, this should be hopefully kind of quick, but I have three general segments. There's going to be one where we'll be talking in just a moment about two really interesting big numbers that are defining sort of the rest of 2020. Um, We're going to talk about the remainder of the Trump administration's term, um, the coup that wasn't, and I can't believe we're even using that word as an insult to other fine coups we've done in the past. And uh, lastly, some good vibes, kind of a retrospective on Dan from the internet as it hits this new sort of interesting chapter it's in. Um, I have some thoughts about that and some things to think about, but we'll get to that very soon, very shortly. I think I want to start with the beginning how and why America chose death. So there's two big numbers that have kind of come out of the news, especially as we enter November 2020, early December 2020. And the first of those numbers is 260,000. 260,000, that's the number that at time of recording, um, Americans have died from COVID-19. It is heinous and preventable, and of course we're going to get into all of those things in a moment. But I mentioned that there are two big numbers that are helping to describe and detail the current situation we're in right now, especially in the United States. And that other number is 30,046. 
30,046 is the number that the Dow Jones Industrial Index reached just before the November holiday weekend. It's a record number, 30,000. It is a surprising number considering the sharp drop we had in all of our economic or stock market measurements um, and economic measurements as well. But especially the stock market, that sharp drop that we had in March was some of the worst that we've seen, not since the Great Recession, but also since the Great Depression, as far as those economic metrics have come out. So to see this quickly of a recover, quick of a recovery on the surface looks really impressive. On the surface, of course. But then, of course, the numbers don't tell you anything. Even though the stock market is doing very well, um, as lockdowns are going into place again, a lot of workers face the reality that they are going to be out of work for the next three weeks and they may not have jobs to come back to as their employers may not be able to make it the next three plus weeks of lockdown um, through the winter. We are also experiencing a troubling rise in homelessness, a uh, rise in uh, food insecurity that's happening all across the country in a number of different populations, in cities, in rural areas, um, in demographically white communities, in black communities, in less so in rich communities, but definitely in working class communities, as these things tend to happen. But somehow the stock numbers are going up and things are going generally well, at least at this snapshot in time. And so the reason why there's all of this suffering happening going on on Main Street while Wall Street is doing very well highlights something that I think we've known for a long time, and that's that the indicators on Wall Street are not at all connected to the real-life experiences of those of us on Main Street, those of us in the rest of the world, the vast majority of people. Um, who see day to day and see the rise in homelessness. They see that um, people are losing jobs, people are having a tougher time making ends meet, people are having a tougher time dealing with rent, and that's becoming a major issue. Um, so when we take a step back and wonder how exactly things got to this point, it really goes down to the fact that America had a bad diagnosis of how to fix and handle the economy back in March. See, the lockdowns did not have to have this massive amount of economic volatility at the start of the pandemic, and the suffering that the stock market and the suffering that the stock market ended up going through did not need to happen, of course. That stock market suffering came back after a while, but mainly what I'm trying to get at is the suffering that regular people went through is unnecessary and just how the stock market came back main street could have come back as well if america did a couple of things uh, a little more intelligently and here's i'm going to argue that um never mind the craziest anti-vaxxers who see the government as tyranny or like the anti-maskers who see any sort of like move to wear masks and do anything like that even though that's preventable and it's certainly preventable The key reason these lockdowns have received pushback is because it swiftly tossed people out of work and their jobs didn't allow them to work from home. Because of this necessity where people had to 
separate themselves a little bit more from the outside world because of this necessity, because this virus was spreading. There was no alternative given to regular people who are in that situation where you're taking their income away from them, you're taking probably their health insurance access away from them, and there was no answer given. And this was definitely a failure of policy um, and a failure of just understanding of economics. Material conditions matter. And again, I'm going to go into some details about what happened kind of across the world. So I think we'll start with an article in the New York Times that summarizes how the title of it is how European workers drew paychecks and American workers scrounged for food. This was written to kind of cover things in July 3rd, but it's pretty accurate to how it ended up happening. European countries, among them Denmark, Ireland, Britain, France, the Netherlands, Spain, and Austria, have prevented joblessness by effectively nationalizing payrolls, heavily subsidizing wages, and enabling paychecks to continue uninterrupted. Again, quoting from the New York Times. So, they prevented record amounts of joblessness by nationalizing payrolls, subsidizing wages, and enabling paychecks to continue uninterrupted. What happened in America, on the other hand, is that we sent all of our economic relief in the form of government-backed loans that were given to the private banks in order to distribute. By making the private banks into this middleman, this middle lender, it allowed for mismanaged paperwork, lost documents, other shady sort of behaviors that I think will become more apparent in the coming months and years as the dust settles from this pandemic and the economic response to it. What you got was a lot of waste. These so-called paycheck protection loans and the paycheck protection program didn't protect all the people that it sought out to try to help. A lot of businesses had to shut down their doors permanently because they sought out these loans, they needed these loans, they required them, they fell under, I mean, they fell under the requirements for them, and they required them, of course. But our government was not there to help those regular people, those small business owners, in their hour of need. It was there to help the tourism industry, the oil and gas industry, all of the major industries that are politically connected and have the power to get their foot in the door and say, hey, yo, we need a bailout. Carnival Cruises, we're getting a bailout. The airlines, we're getting a bailout. The local restaurants that make your local community feel like what it is and makes it feel home, those are gone. Or do some paperwork with some banks here, and unless you're one of the bank's high-value clients, you're not going to get priority for this limited amount of money. And it gets even less theoretical than that, because we're talking about business owners trying to seek out money, much the same way that um, regular people found bureaucratic problems trying to file for unemployment, which definitely happened um, earlier this year for a lot of people. That was largely a result of the United States having not an ample amount of resources to supplement the wages that were being lost. And it's not that we didn't have the ample amount of resources, let me make that clear. We had the resources, but both the Republican Party 
and the Democratic Party united to give Americans less than the bare minimum. We got 1,200 checks and Steve Mnuchin said it was supposed to last 10 weeks. Nancy Pelosi said, uh, well, we'll try these things, but we don't want to give Trump an advantage by allowing him to give out money right before an election. So I guess you'll lose your job. Back to the New York Times article that's kind of giving a context to what is happening in the rest of the world. Jobless data reveals how the pandemic has assailed American workers with exceptional force. The unemployment rate in the United States has soared nearly eight percentage points since February. It registered 11.1% in June. While France, Germany, Ireland, and the Netherlands have all limited increases in the jobless rate to less than one percentage point. Now, the unemployment rate is now 7%. Before this all started, it was 3.5%. We have to remember that the unemployment rate only counts those who have been actively looking for work in the past six months. Those who are on unemployment insurance and haven't actually been looking for work, or those who have dropped out of the job market entirely because of the fact that the hiring market in the United States is just inefficient, those people are left out of the count. So that 7% number is a gross undercount. But even given all of that, all these other countries in Europe only saw a 1% increase in their unemployment rate. That, that was their sharp increase. Well, our sharp increase was 8 percentage points. They went up by 1%, we went up by 8%. Because what they did in Europe, to summarize it up, in Europe they had programs where the government would pay a percentage of your paycheck and your employer would pay a smaller percentage of your paycheck. So therefore the employer could save a little bit of money because they weren't making as much money as they usually would. Whereas the employee didn't have to worry about losing their job or losing the majority of their income. They could continue paying their bills and not worry about that aspect of life. So they could consider the pandemic and make sure to take care of themselves, make sure to prevent um, the amount of times they have to go outside and interact with other people to prevent the spread of the virus. They're actually able to focus on the public health aspects of their country because the economy was taken care of, it was handled, it was under control, rather than being let in free fall in the United States. So let's go back and look at this. COVID-19 has killed over 260,000 people in the United States. 260,000 Americans. It's hard to really let that sink in. But it's also killed the multi-decade Republican economic dogma. Since the Reagan era, all these attempts at big government spending have been met with resistance from the Republican Party in saying that, oh, we can't spend all of this money. Inflation will go up. It'll be too much. But we saw this year what happened when we instead decided to print trillions of dollars at the Fed and give it to big business and pump it into the stock market. So big business continues to thrive and do well. Amazon's doing record numbers. Uh, Target's doing record numbers. All these big businesses are doing great. While Main Street, all these small mom and pop stars are, stores are disappearing in front of our eyes. That's why the stock market is going up because it's inflated with government cash. And that's why Main Street is struggling and there's homelessness everywhere because that's where all the cash went. 
For Americans, the risks are heightened. I'm reading from the New York Times article again. The risks are heightened by the fact that the nation lacks a national medical system, a feature taken as a given in Europe, leaving, leaving most people reliant on their jobs for access to health care. And that's the thing. When you have a universal health care system, when you have a universal health care system, you can actually... Again, it's another consideration, just like economics, that you don't have to worry about during a pandemic. We don't have to worry about, oh, people aren't covered for their insurance, so if they have to be put on a ventilator, they're going to be charged $30,000 on their way out. That's something we don't have to worry about. We're not continually dinging people on the way down, unlike the American meat grinder of capitalism does to people. U.S. debt has gone up $7 trillion under the Trump administration. We went into debt over tax cuts for the rich and a trade war, and continued liquidity given to the top 1%. It's kind of insane. The GOP might do its best to lean into the Trump chaos of the um, transition process and all those different things to direct its attention away from the catastrophic failure to keep its country safe. But we can't forget this, that this was preventable and better economic policy, smarter economic policy, perhaps maybe looking at our European allies or just thinking what would work best for our country here. And hopefully this will be a lesson that we can actually handle these things in a smarter way. But unfortunately, that 260,000 number and that 30,000 number are probably going to still keep going up. I don't think there's anything that more properly summarizes the state of the American economy and the American society than the fact that the number of deaths can go up and the stock market can continue to perform well. People are losing jobs, the unemployment rate is going up, that people are getting evicted, people are out on the streets, and people are also getting, a smaller number of people are also getting richer and richer and richer, while the rest of society suffers. This is not what anyone intended when they wanted to create a fair and just society, and any attempt to continue to justify this is basically just justifying Jeff Bezos's unlimited wealth. Since at least the Clinton years, the GOP has existed on a bet. The bet that the implicit approval of off-base conspiracy theories against political opponents would provide them with a political base, a solid political base, that would take them to victory upon victory upon victory until they ultimately had control of every feasible branch of government. For decades, they've won that bet. But with the end of the Trump administration, they may begin to see the significant downsides to the bet they've just made. For the sake of time, let's keep things on topic and not talk about the entire history of Republican disinformation cycles. I did a little bit of that in my PragerU video at youtube.com slash internet if you do want to check that out. And for the sake of this conversation, let's flag the birther movement, the movement that happened earlier on in the Obama administration, uh, late aughts, early tens, 
that alleged that Barack Obama was not born in the United States, as he had alleged, as the birth certificate says, as all of the records say. But know that all of this was a long game conspiracy theory to allow Obama to be president, but obstruct the fact that his father and he was born outside of the US in Kenya. Um, and a number of other racist undertone type things. It all sounds quaint considering it's now almost 10 years ago, but this used to be conspiracy theory world. And this is something that the Republican Party decided to more closely align themselves with after at first giving it a little bit of pause. Because at first, this was the time when Fox News would, like everyone on the right, throw random, random talking points at the cameras until they stuck. These birther ideas circulated in email chains and right-wing blogs even before even hitting the airwaves of Fox News. And Fox News, while they talked about it a lot, ultimately was only one of the catalysts for this conspiracy. Donald Trump, who was just again starting to dip his toe into politics after a pretty dormant period of time, after previously uh, talking about being a Democrat for much of his life, started taking on the birther movement as his own cause. He said that he had his own investigators in Hawaii, that um, his investigators were coming up with shocking things, very good things that would be coming out very soon, you know, the same way that Trump talks. We should have really seen this coming. Many of us saw this coming, but more people should have seen this coming. But Donald Trump went whole hog into it. He commissioned a fake investigation. He had press conferences. He went on TV promising answers and teasing bombshells with nothing to show for it. The Republicans would make gains in Congress for every single election in that decade until 2018 when the House began to break. And again, this wasn't the only reason why the GOP made these gains. And Donald Trump wasn't the only reason why the birther movement had this strong kind of, um, I, I guess track record for a little while. It, it had a good, uh, lasted a good run, let's say. But Trump was able to energize the Republican base and the Republicans were able to energize their base off of conspiracy theories tinged in racism or other forms of bigotry. And that brings us to today and the idea of accountability for Donald Trump. Are we going to punish Donald Trump for, or even the members of his administration, for the lightest aspects of corruption or even the heaviest aspects of corruption that have come as a result of this obstruction of our federal branch. Because otherwise, who's allowed to do that afterwards? Democrat or Republican? So going to a Washington Post article, Washington Post article titled, Trump privately plots his next act. Trump has told confidants that he could announce a 2024 run before the end of this year, which would immediately set up a potential rematch with President-elect Joe Biden. Now, first of all, Joe Biden has already indicated that he probably wouldn't, um, he's a transitionary, he thinks of himself as a transitionary president and probably wouldn't seek a second term. Not sure if he would last or make it a second term anyways, but I also said the same thing about this election cycle and a lot of crazy things happen this election cycle, so I'll be transparent with that. And, um maybe hold some of my predictions here momentarily. But Trump has also been, continuing from the article, continuing again from the Washington Post article, Trump has also been exploring ways to make money for relatively little work, such as giving paid speeches to corporate groups or selling tickets to rallies. In addition, he may try to write a score-settling memoir of his time as president, 
and appear on television in paid or unpaid capacity. Now, this doesn't really surprise anyone. This is what most presidents or former presidents do. Even if they decide to run again or not, they usually do speaking gigs. Sometimes they're private. A lot of times they're paid for six-figure salaries. Sometimes they'll do rallies. We know Trump loves his rallies and the big, beautiful boaters and all those different things. And they very often appear on television. Trump, who was already planning a media venture when he was planning to fail in 2016, would probably... Um, Trump would probably buy one of these other smaller griftosphere entities like Newsmax or The Blaze or One American News at this point, spin it off again as Trump TV and use that as his own platform to cut out Fox News as the middleman and speak directly to his base. Uh, again, from the Washington Post article, Trump has rallied, has railed privately about the presidential debate moderated by Fox's Chris Wallace, the fact that the network was the first major news network to call Arizona for Biden, and that one of Fox's correspondents confirmed the Atlantic's reporting that Trump had called military service members, quote, suckers and losers. So again, it's very clear that if Donald Trump wants to go about this again, he wants to be in control of his own narrative. And that gets to the whole point. I think there's a lot of hysteria about Donald Trump, and there will continue to be a lot of hysteria about Donald Trump that will be misdirected in that we should be focused around the hysteria around the... Specifically, we should be focused around the hysteria of the movement he's created, is what I mean. We should focus on the hysteria of the movement that he has created. Because whether Trump ends up being the avatar for the Republican Party in 2024, or they decide that, you know, we lost with Trump, so let's get someone else who's similar, more refined around the edges, or they somehow do a really dumb move and go for someone really boring and moderate like Mitt Romney, there will be this base of people who are very susceptible to these wild conspiracy theories who will be wrapped around the finger of whoever will give them the wildest conspiracy theory. Tinge it with uh, transphobia or racism, and you've got a really nice melting pot mix of a really horrible political tool that's been utilized by the Republican Party for a long period of time. But I think the Democrats are just very inequipped to handle it or even know about it. They're having their own internal battle, of course, and we've talked about that and we'll continue to talk about that as it happens. But the reason why I open this up with accountability is because holding Trump accountable, not necessarily for the way he got power, because that's not against the law, and the story will write itself, but to hold Trump accountable for what he did in office will signal to the next people that run for president that you can, of course, take advantage of America's likelihood to agree in these conspiracy theories. You can take advantage of all these other different rougher aspects of the United States and the way it works. But once you get into office, you will face consequences for using the country for your gain, for appointing all of your cronies to work at different aspects of the government and take advantage of existing regulations and pull back other regulations, not just because you're pulling back regulations to make the government work better or to allow freedom in the market or something, but purely to fill the pockets of your political adversaries. As Donald Trump has done, we've got to show in our laws that that's not acceptable and it's not tolerable on either side of the aisle. 
Of course, this would be a logical argument and a very reasonable argument in a pre-Trump world, one that Republicans and Democrats, especially on the moderate side, might agree with. But Democrats are asleep at the wheel and Republicans are coming guns blazing next, next time around, especially in the midterm elections in 2022, which might be kind of tough for Democrats. So that goes all to say is don't brush off the conspiracy theories as they start happening because that's usually the cheapest way to get the fire burning under the Republican base, especially at this point. And wherever that fire burns, any opposition to that should be very careful. As of this edition of Power Report, the Dan from the Internet YouTube channel has hit a thousand subscribers on YouTube, which is kind of awesome. I haven't really said that out loud truly ever, and it's sort of sinking in that I created a YouTube channel and a thousand people subscribed to it. And yeah, I'm getting a little bit emotional thinking about it, but like that's really awesome. Like, thank you very much for believing in me enough to continue watching my videos, to comment on those videos, to make sure that um, they get in the algorithm and people see them, um, and especially believing in me from day one, back when I started the channel, when I sporadically released these videos. Um, thank you for being part of the journey and sharing the video so that the community grows. It's really awesome. I've got a lot of ideas with it, and a lot of the things that prevent me from making more content are because I want to uphold a certain kind of quality and something to make my videos and what I do not only just distinct from what everyone else does on YouTube, or at least from what most people do on YouTube, there will be some overlaps, but it goes more into the second thing of, I want it to be something I'm proud of. I don't want to put up something that's rushed. I don't want to put up something that I haven't researched and thought of to some extent. Um, I want to put up something that's quality, but the YouTube algorithm and news itself also demands things to be very quick and oftentimes bombastic and sensational and a lot of what my project as a news producer has been is to fight against those things and to really go into the details about it and still, of course, have fun. But the fact that there are a number of people who believe in that mission and want to see it go forward, um, it means a lot and I genuinely appreciate it. Um, we're going to continue. It's going to be great. Hitting a thousand subscribers on YouTube means I'm very close to a goal of monetization, which means I can start to make money and receive money off of some of the content that I make. And then once I do that, and once it continues to grow, if Dan from the internet becomes a viable resource, um, then I can spend more time from it. I can make the videos better. It grows even more. And, you know, it just gets better and better and better. So I really appreciate that. I appreciate the new fans of Power Report who have come on, um, fans of uh, The Damage Report with John Irola, TYT in general, uh, fans of Kimberly and Nicole Foster's show or any of the other like things I've been relatedly on. Thank you for joining and watching and continuing to watch, and I really appreciate it. And especially because this year's been <laughs> pretty difficult. There was the death of um, my friend Courtney that I talked about in the bad news video to some extent. There's also the death of Michael Brooks that we've talked about in a Power Report episode, which reminds me of something that I, I, I didn't, I kind of left this out of a lot of my Michael Brooks stories as was happening because it was a little bit irrelevant, but my last conversation with Michael Brooks was about a t-shirt I had ordered from his website and I was expecting the t-shirt I thought it was gonna be really cool but it just like got lost in the mail or whatever so I emailed customer service and 
they were taking a while to get back to me. And so I did the, I know Michael Brooks thing. I asked Michael directly like, hey, what's up? Can I possibly get like a shirt or something? And <laughs> the dude responded to me. He responded back and said, oh yeah, I'm so sorry. Let me make sure, let me get it back for you and all these things. And let me fix it for you. And of course, Michael Brooks and I conversations in the past have been a lot more about him trying to encourage me to do the thing I am now doing, which is talking in front of a camera about politics to a larger audience. And he believed in me to do this kind of thing at a time when I very much did not believe in myself to do the same thing. And in a time that I'm very still much getting used to it. So the passing of Michael Brooks has been rough and going through those past couple of months without him has been um, kind of wild. But there's a lot of stuff I know that he is happy for in the sense that his tradition, his legacy is being carried out through so many other different people that it's almost more than he could have done as one person. And that's ultimately what he wanted. Um, but I did say all of that to say long, long after we had that conversation and a couple months after that he did ultimately um, pass suddenly, I finally got the package that's supposed to have the shirt in it. I don't know if it's going to be wrong or whatever, but I basically told myself that as a thousand subscriber gift to myself, I would open the shirt from Michael Brooks that I was sent. So, um, how do I change on camera? I guess it's one of those snap things so you go like. DMBS baby. Left is best. Um, wow, it feels nice to have this shirt and to be wearing it finally. Last thing, I also discovered recently there's this whole section of my YouTube channel where um, YouTube flags comments and holds them before they're posted. And if you've been following my channel for a while, you know one of my favorite things to do is read the raunchiest, most ridiculous comments I get from people who are trolls and definitely obviously hate me. But I'm going to read a couple that are just, you know, directed towards me, not directed towards me, just interesting in general. Like this one, which says, quote, Shapiro is a whore of Babylon. He is a right-wing racist. Is that redundant? Hashtag Babylon has fallen when the hashtag Fox fake news. It, it, it just kind of, it goes on like this. But the fact that someone kind of opened a comment with Shapiro is a whore of Babylon is just kind of like really hard. And I go at it. Like I, I'm super here for it. Um, for some reason, a lot of people are still commenting a lot on my um, Ben Shapiro versus AOC video because I knew that Ben Shapiro uses stories about AOC to kind of just like give red meat to his base even though the AOC story of the day is usually not the most important thing happening in the world and even I'll admit that as someone who is somewhat partial to AOC as a politician. It's really easy to get his base angry and fired up about things that aren't even totally true but it's just a very quick like boogeyman like look it's a woman it's a Latina and she's socialist and get mad about this it's really easy. Um, but as a result, people, years after I've made this video, keep commenting on it, saying things like, Oh, stop. The only reason AOC wouldn't debate Ben, Sh ben Shapiro is because he would embarrass her because there's no substance to her argument. Never mind the spelling mistakes in this. Uh, I, there's not much substance to Ben Shapiro's arguments. I've done multiple videos about this, more than I even care to do, uh, detailing how there's no substance to his arguments. But, um, yeah, sure. 
And this is my favorite last one, last one. Grand Dan Oiz says, Okay, Dan from the internet. As a rhetorician, I find it odd you label Ben Shapiro's idea of debates as a way to virtue signal to people on the right who have already made up their minds. One, there's a such a thing as vote collecting strategies where your vote augmentation is based on informing and strengthening your side's viewpoints by reinforcing it with good arguments. But that's not what he's doing. Oh, he puts a 1.2 here, which is very funny. Um, signaling virtue. Ugh. Signaling virtue is done by going out and doing stuff or making statements that have no arguments to them, in which point it is to show others your virtues. <laughs> it's, it's just this, it, I love this man actually spent time trying to explain virtue signaling to me and trying to explain that Ben Shapiro is not doing it when that's literally the idea of his whole show. He's existing to virtue signal to conservatives. It's identity politics for white people, honestly. Um, and... He's good at it to the point where it justifies me talking about it, but not more than I really want to. Um, so that's that. I'm going to enjoy the rest of this day. Um, I hope you do too. There's going to be a lot more Power Report coming up very soon. And um, thank you for allowing me with this little experiment of doing these episodes where I'm just kind of talking as myself about these news topics. I'm hopefully going to get better at them as I do more of them. Um, but I appreciate you all for sticking through this. and. Yeah, 1,000 subscribers to Dan from the internet. 100,000 more. Let's go. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, I can be found on Twitter uh, at Dan from the web, at twitch.tv slash Dan from the web. Streaming on Twitch sometimes, probably more soon. YouTube.com slash Dan from the internet. Instagram.com slash Dan from the internet. Power Report can be found on Dan from the internet. And I also do a music podcast called Audio Face. You can check that out on Audio Face Pod on most social media platforms. And uh, yeah. Stay safe out there, stay sane out there, and I'll talk to you next time. Cheers.